This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The GabFest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, and have your postal carrier pick up your packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 14th, 2014, the President Whisper edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in a Chicago hotel room, the Ulysses S. Grant room at the Hotel Lincoln. The Grant Room. It is. You must be so happy. I'm so excited to be in the Grant Room. Quoting the biography, like by chapters. It's really exciting. Are you guys? Do you guys share my enthusiasm, John? You surely. I definitely share it. I definitely share it. But mostly, I share it through you because I know how much you like it, and I'm so envious that you were able to read. You should have a drink for Ulysses S. Grant. Have a few drinks. But he wasn't morning. That is that is like the the hoary old cliche. He was he had drinking problems, which he resolved and became a great leader. It doesn't sound like a cliche. It sounds like a true fact <laughs> that has other facts surrounding it. It's over. It's it's, it's like over, saying you're, it's you're just a beard. There's too much of it. Okay. Yeah, it's so overserved. Yes, he he was he was uh, he was an, he had many other talents. You could think of this as a writing space. I should write something because he was such a great writer. Or perhaps I should lead an army while I'm here. You hear, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hi, David. And John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News. Hello, John. Hi, David. Um, we have a tiny audience here in our hotel room. <laughs> They're all audience under three Slate feet Plus tall. members, auction winners. Hello, audience. Hello. You guys can say hello. Hello. Yeah. We have three topics today. We will talk about the Supreme Court's Affordable Care Act decision to take another case involving the Affordable Care Act. We'll talk about net neutrality, President Obama's uh, weighing in on the net neutrality debate, and we'll talk about presidential whisperer Valerie Jarrett, who is suddenly the subject of a whispering campaign herself. And we'll have cocktail chatter, and we'll have Slate Plus segment. We'll have uh, questions from, from our small audience. Before you go on, may I read, which I've already read once on the show, um, the final line from Grant's second inaugural address, which is one of my favorites. I'll only read the second line, but you really must read the whole ending. But his final sentence is, I have been the subject of abuse and slander scarcely ever equaled in political history, which today I feel that I can afford to disregard in view of your verdict, which I gratefully accept as my vindication. Basically giving the finger to everybody who didn't want him to be reelected. What do, you think they, do you think they had the finger? What do you think you did in the 19th century to give the finger to people? What was the gesture? There must have been some 
finger-like gesture? I don't know. They probably, polite people, even impolite people probably didn't gesture. Well, no, impolite people. Surely they gestured. I mean, surely 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 you gesture. The the neck thing, which I associate with the the, mouth. I thought that's a European. I mean, there must be. Mike Volo, you should get on this and figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You think that? I, I feel like that's that pretty that modern. That all seems also, contemporary yeah, somehow. And, Eastern, and, and European somehow, like, yeah, 19th century. All right. I think our listeners should write in with early gestures. Early gestures. Derision. Derision. And also, did they mean, yeah. do they mean fuck you or do they mean something else? Was right. there, what was their meaning? Uh, all right. Disregard your opprobrium, which is a little more complicated. <laughs> Has more syllables, at least. So, our first topic, the Affordable Care Act. (laughs) Like like a bad horror movie, here it comes. Here it comes again. You thought this was over. The Supreme Court this week accepted cert in a case involving a challenge to the subsidies that are being provided to millions of Americans who are living in states which do not have their own exchanges. These are states that chose, for a variety of reasons, mostly... um, because they had Republican leadership that objected to it on principle, not to set up state exchanges under Obamacare, and they were, instead there are federal exchanges, and and the poor people who are signing up for insurance through those exchanges need subsidies to make the health insurance affordable for most of them. There is a claim being made, which Emily is going to explain in great detail in one second. That numbing the, detail that those subsidies, those subsidies are illegal because the plain language of the statute says that the subsidies are only for people who are getting Obamacare through state exchanges. I guess there are two questions. Is, is What is the claim being made? What's the legal substance of it? And then what does it mean that the Supreme Court took this case? So take the first part and then take the second part. Okay. The first part is about one line or perhaps three lines in the statute, depending on how you think about it. There is this line in the statute that says that subsidies go to people who buy health insurance in exchanges, quote, established by the state under Section 1311, unquote. So you go to 1311 and it says that, quote, each state shall, unquote, set up an exchange by the beginning of 2014. If the state doesn't set up their exchange, then you move to Section 1321, and that section says the federal government will set up the exchange in the state's stead. So if you read all those things, three things together, the question is going back to exchanges established by the state. Does that simply mean state state-run exchanges, or does it also include state federally-run exchanges? And also, there are seven states, I think, that have hybrid exchanges that are sort of joint federal-state The courts have so far split on this that's slightly complicated. By a 3-0 vote, the Fourth Circuit upheld the IRS reading of this law, which said that subsidies could go to everyone. The IRS is the agency that has the authority to interpret the statute, and the IRS basically said, look, like this is a little ambiguous, but we think that it's clear Congress's purpose was to give subsidies to everyone, because otherwise... Obamacare could go into the kind of death spiral in which all these people who are healthy but can't afford um, health insurance will pull out and the exchanges will collapse. The D.C. Circuit, there was a three-judge ruling. There was a split two to one against the IRS reading, so against subsidies for everyone. Uh, party lines, Republicans versus Democrats. The D.C. Circuit as a whole um, said they wanted to rehear the case. So they actually did what's called vacating the three-judge ruling. It doesn't exist anymore. So technically, there's no circuit split. And in the normal course of affairs, 
what you would expect would be for all 11 judges of the D.C. Circuit, seven of whom are Democrats, two and four of whom are Republican appointees. I should always use appointees, but that's the party split. You'd expect them to take this case, probably rule in favor of subsidies for everyone. And then there would be no split between the federal appeals courts and probably no reason for the Supreme Court to weigh in. And yet the Supreme Court kind of plucked this case out before the D.C. Circuit as a whole can rule on it. And that doesn't look like it bodes very well for subsidies for everybody and Obamacare, because why did they grab this case? On the other hand, in the sort of like, well, maybe this isn't so bad, um, it only takes four judges to decide to take a case. And obviously it takes five judges to win the case. So you can imagine a scenario in which the four conservatives who voted against Obamacare in the first round of Obamacare litigation, took this case to either um, because they think Chief Justice Roberts, who saved Obamacare last time, memorably, either they think he's winnable and he'll be on their side this time, or they're trying to embarrass him and just sort of force the issue because they feel like this is just wrong, or there's just some other whole thing going on that we don't understand. Uh, Here's one rosy interpretation. Um, I think from me that I like, which is that this idea that because these the small number of words in the statute makes the whole thing fall apart, despite the whole rest of the statute and all these ways in which this reading of the statute that you can only give subsidies to state run exchanges makes other parts of the law nonsensical. It's a form of textual interpretation of textualism that is very wooden and formalistic. And one of the chief opponents of that kind of wooden textualism is actually Justice Scalia. Abby Gluck, who's a law professor at Yale, was pointing out in a blog post this week that you can look at Scalia um, writing from last summer in which he was protesting a kind of wooden textualist reading. And he was saying about another statute that it should be read. Statutes must be read in their context and with a view to their place in the overall statutory scheme, which is exactly what the government is arguing here. John, except that. Don't the opponents of the law argue that the language was intentionally written to force states to take the exchanges and that that was the intent? And therefore, you can't go around that intent or you can't claim it was another intent. The problem with that argument is there is very little evidence for it, right? Because everybody who was around – I mean – First of all, to back up a step, if this was true, it would mean that the seeds of destruction for Obamacare are in the law, because if the states didn't take up the invitation, then the whole thing falls apart and they were sort of playing a game of roulette. And there is no member of Congress who has said that was their intent. There is, however, this kind of hidden smoking gun, this guy named Jonathan Gruber at MIT, who was an advisor to the law, it turns out years ago in speeches, said exactly that. And so when was having a bad week. Yes. And when that gem was sort of unearthed and appeared on the internet, there was a lot of, um, you know, high-fiving among libertarians who've been protesting this law. But as far as I know, that's the only evidence we have, this one advisor. Emily, isn't there a case to be made, a non-cynical case to be made, that this was a law that was pushed through in this interim period where the Democrats still controlled the Senate with a filibuster-proof majority, and that they basically pushed this law through unchanged because they had to, because they knew they couldn't do it at another time. And, And because they pushed it through, they passed a law that was a mess. Yes. And that they that therefore we may all want this law to work, we may desire the law to work, but if you pass a law that's a mess, it is the responsibility of judges to try to if Congress refuses to fix the law, if Congress refuses to take legislative action, it's responsibility of judges to uh, make the clearest sense of the law they can make of it. And that, that there's a case to be made that this law 
is incoherent and this particular point is incoherent and needs to go. So the first part of what you said is pretty indisputable, right? Because Ted Kennedy died in the middle of their the effort to pass the law and the Democrats rushed to get it through before Scott Brown was coming in to replace Kennedy in order to have the number of votes. So there's no question that it kind of didn't go through the final like proofreading copy editing that we all as writers know is crucial. I think the second part of what you said can go in either direction. It can go in exactly the direction you said, and certainly we are going to see that opinion from the Supreme Court. It's just whether it's a majority or a dissent, which is, look, sorry, you guys got these words wrong. You go clean it up. It's not our problem. But I also think that when you have a law that is so clearly as a whole rendered absurd by a very narrow myopic reading of one sentence, you can argue that it is less activist and less judges acting like legislators to read the whole thing as a whole in a way that makes sense. What about this idea also that the Supreme Court gives wide leeway to executive agencies to interpret laws? That that, that would be something that would keep them from stepping in. But I want to go – so what if then – what if President Obama – President Obama leaves office 2017 as a Republican president. Could a Republican president, without being able to overturn Obamacare, direct the IRS to interpret this this part of the – statute to mean that actually these these subsidies are not available I to think people. that future president could direct the IRS to do another review I don't think he could say and you have to find this well, outcome but yeah, yes. but yeah you could yes. you have you've appointed the IRS director yes you could appoint an IRS director who you think would reverse this interpretation and that would be another way of going at it yes that's without true. having to overturn the law legislatively which they might not be able to do because they might not have yeah you uh, could I mean that's what but, agency but John do send yeah. do conservatives even want this fight now that's the other question I have some do, some don't. Depends. Yeah. The libertarians do, and the conservatives who want to get reelected or who think that Obamacare isn't really a good issue for them absolutely don't. This is going to strip actual money, tax credit subsidies away from millions of people. But I, I think you want if the if the Supreme Court can get another bite at this, assuming I mean, if you think that the Supreme Court did this and that there's a chance it could destroy the law, all the better to have the Supreme Court do it because then you can say. You know, we were vindicated essentially by the Supreme Court in the way they felt uh, they were put on their heels by the last Supreme Court decision because a a conservative or a Bush appointed uh, chief justice uh, basically went against them. One thing I wanted to ask you, Emily, about how irregular is it for the Supreme Court to sort of circumvent or to jump in front of the D.C. Circuit? It's unusual. It's not irregular. The Supreme Court can do what it wants. It's, you know, there's been a lot of like drum rolling and chest beating, whatever the verb is about this. I'm sort of underwhelmed by that argument. Like, oh, it's so, you know, out of control and like usurping of power. Because one thing that's interesting about that is so the D.C. Circuit has its current composition that would be favorable to the Affordable Care Act because Harry Reid decided to Remove the filibuster for appointments. Yes, and because the, Obama finally got his three, right? Yeah, appointees through. Right. right. So just in terms of while you're when you're following the chess pieces moving here, if the law was poorly written because they didn't have the 60, it could have been saved if the Supreme Court hadn't jumped in by a circuit court that would have saved the law because Harry Reid changed the filibuster rules, put three Democratic appointees on the circuit, and then that would that changed the balance of power in the D.C. Circuit. Yeah, judges matter, and politics matter for who gets appointed as a judge. I have a question for you guys, which is: so if the Supreme Court 
rules against subsidies in the federally run exchanges. Will there be pressure on any governors in these states to set up their own state run exchanges? Is that a kind of rosy scenario in which the states come come around to Obamacare? I think the reaction would be if you're a Republican governor in a state that hasn't set up an exchange and relied on the federal exchanges, you're the safe place to be would just say this is a terrible law forced through a bad system by the president and Democrats. And the Supreme Court has now validated the fact that it's a terrible law built poorly. So this is Washington's mess to to fix. So even though the people in your state are literally like having money taken out of their pockets, many thousands of them and losing their health care, you don't these governors will just be like, sorry, too bad. Well, Right. So I think they the message from the recent election is unclear. So because you had Republican governors in states where they didn't take the Medicaid money, which is the same kind of argument here. And so they were reelected. And there were Republican governors who did take the Medicaid money who were reelected. And arguably John Kasich being reelected in Ohio by a bigger margin is a stronger argument for taking the Medicaid money. But anyway, so that's an unclear signal. And we're talking about uh, a lot of states. So maybe a few go in one direction and most don't set up their own exchanges. Right. Although then the question is whether the system could, could survive, because the idea is if the subsidies are taken away, then it creates a, uh, an earthquake in the whole system. I think what could, what could change to change the behavior of Republican governors who are against the exchanges and taking the federal money required to set up the exchanges, which again, they don't want to like take from that poison uh, tree, is that in the next election in those kinds of states, in Florida and Ohio in particular, you're talking about a presidential year where you have a different kind of voter, set of voters. And if a governor or the party gets stuck, or the Republican Party more broadly gets stuck with looking like they're sort of being mean to people of lo- without the means, um, the sort of middle class and below, then that's a large problem for the party. But I don't know if that's if an individual governor, that pressure falls on an individual governor, especially since in Florida and Ohio, those guys were just reelected. Oh, God, what a country. All right. We have a sponsor this week. The GabFest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Mailing your letters and packages has just gotten a lot easier thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can mail and ship anything, anywhere using just your computer and printer. There's no more trips to the post office. It's easy. Anyone can do it. Just click print and mail. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk. Stamps.com does all the work for you and even gives you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail. And the setup is incredibly easy. In minutes, you can be printing your very own postage. I will be printing Ulysses S. Grant stamps. You can believe that. You'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, we have a special offer. Use our promo code GABFEST. You'll get a no-risk trial, $110 bonus offer, which includes that digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Net neutrality. President Obama came out in favor of it this week. He he proposed that the FCC, which has the decision-making power on it, try to regulate broadband service, internet access as a utility, not over pricing, but over essential access to it. The FCC, which is the federal commission, which is not controlled by the president, he has, there are three Democrats on that commission right now, the chairman was appointed by him, two Republican appointees, has the authority to, or may have the authority to regulate this issue. And the president has weighed in with what he wants, but he does not 
intrinsically get to decide it. There is a partisan split on this issue, although I don't actually understand why there's a partisan split on this issue. It baffles me that there's a partisan split on this issue. You don't understand why Republicans don't want to allow ISPs to have to do what they want and not well, say, I think you. I think they're they're. It's an industry split, and that must help determine the partisan. There, there are business interests on both sides of this, and this basically the only people who are in favor of getting rid of net neutrality are ISPs, a few device manufacturers like Cisco and big telecom companies. Yeah, and telecom companies yeah, are that's what you mean ISP, ISPs, yeah. and and there's a huge business interest on the other side. Lots of small businesses, lots of startups, and lots of new economy businesses. Well, and also and Facebook consumers. and Google. Remember, there are big companies on the other side too. This is sort of like the net. I mean, the internet companies versus telecom. Can I also can we just step back for most people, including those who just read stories about net neutrality, to remind people what net neutrality is because it is. It Everybody is one of gets the most... equal access to the internet. You don't, you can't have a kind of toll system or a tiered system where if you're a big company with a lot of money, your customers get faster service for particular kinds of streaming than everybody else. It just all goes into the pipe and it all comes out at the so same time. So if you are in favor of net neutrality, you are in, in favor of a pipe going into the home where all information flows at the same rate. That is what it means Everybody's to be in favor of it, net neutrality. It gets I just, to you yes, yeah. whenever it gets and to you. And if you're opposed to net neutrality, you believe that the people who control these pipes, who have invested in the infrastructure, who have made these decisions, who are making the deals with content providers, have a right to price accordingly and to say that certain kinds of content can be favored based on deals that they've made or they just want to make the, that content e- flow easier and other stuff flow slower. And the, the claim against that is that that will disfavor, it will harm new companies, companies that, that may not be able to strike these great deals with the ISPs, that this will inhibit startups, it will inhibit new things from coming up that can do, that can do well. Um, Here's one question I have about the merits of net neutrality. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not arguing in favor of the big corporations. I don't think AT&T and Verizon should get some special ability to pay more for their customers. However, I do wonder about um, tiering speed of delivery by type of content streaming. In other words, particularly video, which is much um, heavier demand on broadband, slows things down um, for all the other little bits of content that are trying to shoot through more quickly. And I do wonder about that. Like, for example, should Verizon have to pay, or should it be legally permissible for Verizon to be asked to pay more to stream you the video? So your request to Verizon, which is just which is not in video, would still go through the pipe with everything else. But then for streaming large quantities of video, there would be a kind of toll. No. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm not a scholar of net neutrality. I think that people who are scholars of net neutrality would say no, because look, we can't conceive of what the big broadband uses are going to be in three years or but six years. But couldn't you years. just do it and by like amount of broadband use? Forget. I'm just using video as the concrete example because. I know about it. But what if you just did it by some, you know, well, but numbers you do pay. of pay. I mean, you gigabytes. pay more. You're allowed to pay more for higher speed service. Like you can pay more to get 50 meg service than 10 meg service. You, the consumer, can, the consumer. but the company can't pay more to deliver it faster or slower. I just wonder if companies that are sending very large packages that slow down the little letters that, you know, everyone is sending over email, if those big packages should actually cost more. 
for them to send. So yes, should for Netflix, them to send. So you're saying should Netflix should be Should Netflix pay more to stream its videos? To stream its videos, Should no. everybody who is streaming videos to you pay more for the videos because the videos slow things down for everyone else? No, I think the decision is made of the consumer. The consumer is deciding, I want I want to get... But I want to get big packages of stuff, and therefore I will pay for a heavier broadband connection. I'll pay for the hundred meg connection. I will get the the highest right. service that way, and that's. But that's and then an I idealized notion of how internet service actually works. In so this you country. don't believe in net neutrality? No, basically. I'm playing so that's with you, this idea for a moment. I'm playing with it because I I don't think that internet service actually works that way. There are very few places where you really have very much of a choice in, in your internet provider, and those of us who move around, which a lot of Americans do, you're often at the mercy of like whatever coffee shop internet service provider there is. It's not like you can show up and say, actually, I want the faster connection. Wait, and therefore. And therefore, since you can't do that, I don't, you have to right. regulate it somewhere else. I'm not actually sure. I mean, I suppose you're right that what I'm saying is... You would is, go, you find a coffee shop that has a better connection. You, as a consumer, say, like, no, actually... you don't. Well, that's well, no, it's not care coffee enough shop. To watch, coffee shop's not the point. If you care enough to watch, to watch the video, you find the better connection. No, coffee shop is the, it's the home, right? You can't find another better connection. Right. In, that's if your a home has only one actually. pipe. Well, you, but your home, you do... No, th- this is the reason why net neutrality has to exist, is that, as a, that you, as a consumer, that basically... The premise of getting rid of net neutrality is that somehow there's a free market and you'll have choice of service. And if you don't like the service that Comcast is providing you and the way they're price discriminating right. against you, you can go, you can go somewhere TV else, which you cannot do. Right. right. I mean, you. Right. This you, is a problem. You, unless you live in Kansas City and you can go to the Google Pipe or wherever. Is it Kansas City? Yeah. They set it up yeah. right. Somebody else who has another way to get into your house as opposed to just having one pipe that. Right. Usually it. we have essentially monopolies. I mean, this is this is a reason for regulating the ISPs as utilities, the way President Obama suggested the FCC should, because they are utility like we don't really have right. competition and right. choice. Right. And and that's what to me, the, the your point is a fine point, Emily. And I, I, I hadn't I haven't worked out the nuances in my head. But the premise of the net neutrality critics is that these are free market companies operating in a free market and they should be allowed to price as they see fit and they should be allowed to act as they they see fit and and make choices and consumers are free to walk away and do something else if they don't like it but that is bogus because of regulation that was earlier because of things that happened a decade 20 30 years ago these companies have locked in monopolies or effective monopolies in most places and you can't you simply have you are stuck with this service so i think if you're stuck with something that is a service it is effectively a utility and therefore you need some form of government regulation to protect all these businesses that and consumers from getting completely hosed by it um, right. I feel 100% behind that. I'm just still flirting with this idea that the type of content, the, the heaviness of its impact on the delivery system for everyone, is it's not – it's not a straight way into the net neutrality debate. It's sort of another question about how internet service and streaming works. And that part of it to me – I don't know, maybe the analogy of the post office is false, and I just need to have explained to me why. But we don't send really heavy, big packages for the same price as a little baby letter. You're, you're, as I said, you, you are paying that price because you have heavied up on your internet service. You have bought a 50 meg service, which will allow you to get 
the video but to then you. But that takes us back to this question of like that we, this this illusion that we had a choice about what kind of videos. You, no, you, you can actually often sometimes in your house you have a choice about how much bandwidth. Yeah, you, you have get. a choice of how much bandwidth you can get. You don't have a choice of who provides it, but you can say I want less I want more or, or, less. or more. Right. I guess I just still feel like I'm constantly at the mercy of other people's choices about broad, broadband. John, why do you think it is that the president has waited so long to hop on this populist bandwagon? This is something which the strongest feelings in the in the among the people around this are highly pro net neutrality and it seems like a a political issue that he could have done something with well he he ran on it i mean he's always he ran on it and his first fcc commissioner promoted laws that promoted net neutrality and then it was the courts that caused this this issue so he's coming down in the debate of the of the fc or coming down in with a position about how the FCC should respond to the court ruling. Right. The D.C. Circuit struck down the FCC's approach. The, the pre-Obama pact D.C. Circuit. Yes. <laughs> but the reason the D.C. Circuit gave for that was tied to the fact that the FCC has not regulated the Internet l- like a utility. They said, basically, FCC, you made a category error. And if you want to have imposed the kinds of regulations that lead to net neutrality, right. choose to- you need to do this other thing. And within the agency and in the kind of lobbying culture that these industries are deeply invested in, this switch internally at the FCC to utility is a big lift i think for reasons that are political what, and i don't really what, john why is it though i don't get this question why is it that republicans see this particular form of regulation uh, that any regulation that comes like this is is anathema is like is awful and yet they've always hated regulation no i know but the, but these were regular but these <laughs> really? are but these are rent seeking companies that locked in huge benefits decades ago because of government regulation verizon Comcast, whatever they ha- they have access to the home, they get to do special things. They've locked in these monopoly monopolistic positions, and now we're now are appealing to sort of a libertarian ethos in the GOP. But their benefits are not libertarian. They got in there not by libertarians. They got in there because they got advantaged by the government over many many decades. And I don't know why Republicans. It's like this theological – this I, sorry, not theological – this ideological objection to regulation has made them not realize that there are forms of regulation that vastly benefit but you small, can't the small be- businesses that they want to help, that give the small businesses and uh, free markets that they want to help a much greater, greater chance of growing. It's a, I but find it a weird isn't there, objection. Isn't there argument that the benefits that these companies are now reaping from the arrangement as it stands are the kinds of benefits that – that get you in the game in the first place. That you, that that's the result of the free market. Wait, which, winners, which and, winners and losers. The the ISPs that want to regulate this, but they weren't. But they didn't get that. They aren't. They yeah, weren't they, there because of the free market. Right, They're there because of government regulations that locked well, them they in would and argue, made them. Yeah. They were rent seeking titans that that have gained huge benefits. And but now they took the original to risks. Else, I mean, when they took the original benefit. risks. When they took the original risks to participate in the market, yes, it was a market set up or that had regulations as a part of it. But that original sin, if that's what it is, shouldn't cause you to add more, muck around with the market more. In the middle, I would. I, I mean, the that's, cynical answer to your question is that these yeah, the other is, companies yeah. are giving campaign donations. I think the deeper, really interesting insight in your point is that government regulation, in some way, always sets the terms. Right? We have this notion there's some pure thing out there called the free market, but in fact, when you look back into history, you always find there is a framework based on how rules were made that determines the choices that 
companies make, and then some companies are advantaged by them, and we kind of pretend that they've arrived at this moment in this pristine form, but it doesn't exist. Right, but if there's a if there's not if there's never a pristine form, wouldn't the argument be then don't there were a set of rules. Everybody operated on those set of rules. They are now benefiting down the road from the initial set of rules. And now if you change them again, you dis, you take away the incentive for anybody to take risks because you're always going well, to change the rules once you like succeed. I mean, that's mythology. The sort of this is mythology. Oh, if we yeah. put it, if we do this, no con- no company will ever build broadband again. They just won't do it. No. It will never happen. No one will ever put in a line of fiber for the rest of human history. <laughs> and AT&T just did this whole thing where they suspended build-outs in 100 cities. It's a classic fireman first bullshit corporate like blackmailing. Blackmailing where you say where you say, Oh, because of this government regulation, this government uncertainty, we just can't possibly proceed and we'll sorry to these hundred cities, we'll never be able to help you and you'll never get the service you deserve. And that's just it's it's pure like blackmail lobbying and there's blackmail. much better competition in europe for internet providers right people consumers in europe actually have choices of more than one or two yeah all right let's move on and better service valerie jarrett is somebody who whose name is known to a lot of people in washington very few people outside of washington she is the first family's best friend or first family's best friend who's in politics she has been a close advisor to president obama and michelle obama over the course of the presidency, she uh, has a bunch of titles. I can't even remember. They're all weird titles. She, she, it's Grand like rem- Puba advisor. You remember, like when Chairman Mao was not even Chairman Mao was like vice chairman of the Politburo, and he wasn't whatever he was. He wasn't actually the. Though usually, when you have a lot of titles like strung together, this is true for me at Yale Law School. I have all these titles. It's a, a mark of how unimportant you are because you can't just be like the main thing. Right. Um, but for her, I feel like it's the opposite. She actually really is important and has all her fingers but, and all. What are, these but are the ti- but the titles are they're mysterious titles. They're not they're not just like they're like advisor advisor and yeah. head of women and children or something. Anyways, for some reason, which John is going to tease out for us, Valerie Jarrett has suddenly become the subject of fascination and derision across. The world of uh, yeah, Washington politics. Care about She's her the, like, there's a whisper campaign well, against this woman who yeah. is herself the person who whispers in the president's ear. And there's a just to just to set the table one yeah. second, John. There's a New Republic story, a vast New Republic story by uh, Noam Scheiber. Then there was a, a piece in Politico attacking her. There's been a variety of then pieces responding to these pieces. So why now? Why is it that she has become this object of fascination? Well, inside the administration, there's always been a question of kind of what roles she plays. Because she has that personal relationship with the president, but she also has this professional role. It's hard to think of Mac McClarty, who was uh, Bill Clinton's chief of staff, who was also a longtime friend of his, and I think also, and was from Hope, Arkansas, played not the same role, but is the closest I can think who bridges these two worlds, which is friend and also powerful insider so if you want to know where the power is like she's the person who was always there and so the question is is she acting as kind of obama's alter ego and therefore the anger that people have with her is anger that they have about obama and that's the Noam scheiber piece had a lot of that there was like there was a sort of kitchen sink quality to all of the critiques about Jared, but they were really critiques about the president in the end. I mean, and the way words, he conducts his and the cabinet way, and the way he ha- runs the government. And yeah, all but the, on like, specific issues, though, like the budget deals, the desire to go for a grand bargain, the fishtailing on immigration, those were Obama's calls. Um, the desire not to take the public option. 
And so Valerie Jarrett may have been the instrument of that, but it's... It, it, Hard to imagine she just made all those yeah, decisions Yeah, exactly. Herself. And so she embodies a position. She is a clone of sorts of the president, and therefore, to the extent there's criticism of him, there is also criticism of her. And also, it's in, in administrations, there's an advantage a lot of times to shooting the person next to the president so you can still have your warm, fuzzy feelings about him. There is a way, and this isn't fully thought out, but that this these attacks are like the ones we saw with Dick Cheney, which is sort of like, he's the real power. He's the one... And in a lot of cases, people said that about Cheney when it was totally Bush's view that was identical to his or Bush was driving the bus. So um, to me, this really read like some thin gruel. I mean, I kept looking for like Valerie Jarrett has done something corrupt or like really, you know, drove a stake through the heart of some wonderful executive. And all I came up with was like Rahm Emanuel felt pissed off about how much access she was. And she gets a seat at the diplomatic table when the president travels. And so there are only eight spots for other people instead of nine. It was like, really? I mean, that's all you got? Yeah, I, and also the idea that she would like back channel to the president from stuff that was said at a meeting. Of like, course, like yeah, that's her job. Right, exactly, <laughs> but I mean, and then the, also compared to White Houses that have had internal fights. I Wait, mean, think about this compared to the Clinton. I White know, House. and that was weird in the piece. It was like, and the Clinton White House, as if the Clinton White House was like, like a functioning standard. place. <laughs> I mean, it was a, a you know a mess. So White Houses are always a mess. You get a bunch of highly ambitious, highly functioning people who. have have sharp elbows and are aggressive and want their ideas heard. That's why there are so many leaks out of a White House is because you have all these people who don't get their agenda forward and then they go leak it because they lost in the room. That's to be expected in any White House. And so this is kind of relative to the normal blowups. This is she has always been a problem because anybody who wants to get something done and the president doesn't do it, they don't say what's well, because the president is dumb. It's because he was somehow tricked out of it by her. It allows everybody. In fact, you could argue that every administration needs somebody right. like this, a heat right. shield right. who can get blamed for all the president's bad decisions to allow him to have some kind of. I, I like Matt Iglesias's piece. Did you guys read this? Matt Iglesias's piece in Vox where he says. I mean, so it's a version of what you're saying, John, but he's, he makes a particular spin on it, which is that she is somebody who is not of the permanent political class, class and the permanent party class within the Democratic Party. She basically is attached to him, but she wasn't she's not a big fundraiser. She's not someone who who's had jobs in Washington or is part of the Washington culture. And therefore, she there's no sense that she's part of the community that will be here after the Obamas are gone or that she she uh, is somebody who is going to wield power in the Democratic Party. And that makes her – she's a slightly alien creature and therefore easily – Easily blamed and expendable. And also tied to Michelle Obama. I mean, there was a lot of sort of, ooh, Michelle Obama is, you know, has too much power and Valerie Jarrett is bad because she's friends with the First Lady. Yeah, I I think the, as I said, I think every administration needs one of these because presidents get blown wildly off course and they need somebody who can remind them of who they are. I think the biggest critique that comes from inside of her is that she has a total slavish affection for the idea of Obama. And then as a public matter, that comes across or that creates a tone deafness and a tin ear to political crises that causes problems for the White House. And so, so she, what well, so for example, I think during the original failures of healthcare.gov, she was saying, oh, it'll be fine. I mean, it's everything's always going to be fine. And his view is always the right view. And it's not going to hurt them politically. And then these things do end up hurting them politically. 
publicly. Yeah, That's there was the that view. one anecdote in I think Nam's piece that was like her turning to him and on Air Force One and saying, "I don't understand why eighty five percent you thought that was total bullshit." No, it's not that I don't think it happened or that it, that I don't think she was wrong. But look, I mean, there's just there's always these two lines. One is one line is you need someone who is going to keep the the president centered and attached to his. You know his self. his self that brought him here, and the other is no. You 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 need someone who's going to challenge him constantly, challenge him. And those are very. It's hard to thread those. Those are well, those are need, two slightly different. Also, you need you both. Need, you need, you need both. both. And you and and it's perfectly and, fine to have someone who is loving and supportive, and even someone who's loving and supportive beyond the the realm of, of rationality. rationality and who is has actual power i mean that seems okay as long as there are other people as I, it seems to me the president certainly knows that he's being criticized all the time it's not like he's unaware i know the that bubble people, isn't that impermeable i know what it was it was during the if you want to keep your oh, health care you can and she said nothing forces you she tweeted at the time at a crucial moment nothing about the obamacare forces you out of this and it was just you know, ultimately, they had to back down from this and say yes and create a, an exemption for people who wanted to keep their plans. And it was just the kind of rigid, there's nothing to see here stance that some people say is typical of her when the political people were saying is, OK, we've got a big problem here and we've got to fix this. And so that would that would be a, something people would normally turn to. But I think the there was an early profile again in the in the Bush years of um, the fight between Carl Rove and Karen Hughes and Andy Card, and it was seen as a sign of how totally dysfunctional the White House is. And I sort of feel like all White Houses are going to be dysfunctional for the to the point you made, David, which is you need somebody who is going to tell you hard truths, and then you need somebody who is your heat shield. And if you set it up right, those people will be in tension a lot of the time. And the president, and then hopefully you have a chief of staff who manages that tension. And the problem in the Bush years was Andy Card was overwhelmed by the pre-existing relationship between uh, Karen Hughes and Karl Rove and couldn't adjudicate effectively, so went the criticism. And so in this case, you people would say you have Valerie Jarrett and on the other side you had Robert Gibbs and you had David Axelrod. And as long as those forces were in equipoise, 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 equipoise. I'm say poise. As, as long as those forces were in equipoise, you were okay. So the conflict is not the problem. It's when it gets out of whack. And so we should allow, be okay with lots of conflict. The way we should be okay with lots of conflict between the new Republican Congress and the president. Conflict is fine, just as long as it doesn't get out of balance. The, I think, can we agree, though, that it's... It, it is bizarre and incorrect to say that the problems that the Obama administration is having or the country is having can be attributed in any significant way to Valerie Jarrett. Or- I, I totally agree. I felt that way about remember during healthcare when people were blaming Max Baucus and uh, for That's a little different. He no, no, was like actually stopping them from. No, but it was because, but I mean, the president option. of the United States was the one who said, I you see. go do this. I mean, it wasn't like Bacchus like wrestled this away from the president. That was a strategy put in place by the president. So, again, you can quibble, but it's at the end of the day, these are all there was nothing that she's been blamed for other than the tenuredness. But that's relatively speaking, pretty Small. Small stuff. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are tippling with Ulysses S. Grant, it's John is having his 12 drinks with General Grant, President Grant. Uh, what are you going to chatter to him about, Emily? 
Uh, my friend Beverly Gage, who is a history professor at Yale, found a letter, an unredacted copy of a very famous letter that is in the New York Times Magazine this weekend, and I think already online. This is a letter that J. Edgar Hoover's FBI sent to Martin Luther King, full of innuendo and threats and salacious gossip about King's sex life, some of which was probably true, but it's written in this very over-the-top way. King took the letter at the time to be um, an invitation to commit suicide, a kind of way of trying to convince him to remove himself from the civil rights movement or actually to um, kill himself. And previously, the letter has only been available in heavily redacted form. Bev was has been doing research for this massive Hoover biography she's working on, and over the summer, to her surprise, she found this complete un- redacted copy of the letter suddenly available in the archive. So now we can all read it online. And it is sort of even more so and crazier than we realized. Why had it been redacted? I think to protect the FBI, basically. Um, There isn't really, when you look at it, it's not like there's much excuse. There are some names of women who were named as King's mistresses. um, And actually, I think that the Times blurred a name in the letter as a way of protecting that person's privacy. But there's not really any reason, I don't think, that it was censored for so long. It was sent along with audio tapes, audio tapes of King talking to these women. And Coretta Scott King opened it opened the letter and the tape, but King immediately saw it. It was supposedly written from a, as in the voice of, of a fellow African-American. And yes, it's written as like, I am your ally in the movement and, and you must you remove t- yourself. You are a, a disgrace. Right, and a total fraud. And he pretty much saw it for what it was almost instantaneously, at least according to what They I thought read. that Hoover had written and while Hoover himself didn't write it, one of his entries. Yeah, Hoover, the guy, William Sullivan. So the thing about William Sullivan is that um, he ended, Sullivan ended up turning on Hoover and writing about a lot of the secret stuff that Hoover was doing in, in a book. And then Sullivan, in 2007, in Robert Novak's book, he wrote about Sullivan saying in 1972, they had lunch and Sullivan said, you know, when I die, it's going to be presented as an accident, but it won't be an accident. It'll be murder. So in 1977, a couple of days before he was supposed to testify in front of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Sullivan is out hunting, goes out hunting, and is shot by another hunter who has a scope on his rifle, 22-year-old By accident? By accident, and it's ruled an accident. But, you know, this is one of the little tributaries of the JFK assassination theories was that Sullivan was murdered along with a few other people in the FBI in the assassinations unit. So he went on to have his own little... That's amazing. Weird life. Anyway, it's really interesting. Do you guys think that just, sorry, this has just occurred to me as I was, as we were talking. Do you think if Hoover were around today and all of his, you know, his homosexuality, his cross-dressing were known, that that would make him a sympathetic figure? Yes, I think that it would. And in fact, I think Bev's biography of him has that potential to kind of make us see him through this more sympathetic really? lens. Oh yeah, God, although, she, I mean, she also has plenty to criticize about. But Wait, yeah. I mean, in, like sympathetic how? Like he, he was so tortured that that yeah. turned him into this horrible person? Yeah. Or that, well, or th- that he was hiding things, that he had this interesting interior life that, you know, was at the time a source of shame. And um, there's but also that some caused interesting to- family history that... Is, anyway, I, I'll keep teasing this book. <laughs> John Dickerson, what's your chatter? Uh, so my chatter is about this, um, another item in the relationship between Bill Clinton and the 
two Bush presidents. So on, uh, I guess it was Wednesday this week, Bill Clinton tweeted, received my copy of number 41 by number 43. So 41 being the number that George uh, Herbert Walker Bush was and 43 being the number of the president that, that George W. Bush was. Touching tribute, Bill Clinton wrote. And then his hashtag was, how are you still not on Twitter? And the other hashtag was presidential tweeters. So then George W. Bush, the 43rd president, wrote on Instagram, thanks, 42. Hope you like the book about your pal. Oh, my God. I love the W is like the early adopter teenager on Instagram. That's awesome. Wait, wait, presidential tweeters. Hold on. Can we just pause there? Clinton is surely the only president on Twitter then. I'm sure Carter's got Carter's something going got on. some. You think so? Um, uh, I got that. So, I got that. Finisher. Uh, uh, so George Bush uh, at the end of his Instagram said, "How are you still not on Instagram?" Presidential grammars, and then the final hashtag is "brother from another mother," which is, I think, the first time that expression has been used by one president speaking about another. I don't know if. What I don't know if Taft and uh, Teddy Roosevelt might have had that expression between the two before their relationship went sour, but. Um, what does one make of this? Because if we can review history, Bill Clinton came into office and made George Bush a rare loser in the presidential um, history books by being a one-term president. Um, and he ran his campaign basically saying that George Bush didn't care about Americans and um, and defeated him. And then George W. Bush ran his campaign and ended every speech by raising his hand and saying, I will restore the honor and dignity of the Oval Office, which was a direct, obviously, shot at Bill Clinton and arguing that his personal indiscretions had besmirched the office of the presidency. Um, So these guys went at it pretty hard with each other. And now they are like, so then Bill Clinton joined with George Herbert Walker Bush in raising money for the tsunami victims. Then they've worked together on Haiti, and he's worked together with George W. Bush. They haven't, uh, Bill Clinton, so 42 and 43 have set up a leadership institute together in which they try to train young leaders to take uh, positions of uh, stature as that when they grow up. And so I guess the, what, what are regular people supposed to make of this? That politics is all silly and that all those fights in the past were really for nothing, that there is a bond of presidents that we should pay attention to because what they all recognize is that the job is brutal and that the things that are said in politics are not as important as and as real as the fact that in the crucible of the presidency, you have a respect for your your ideological opponent, opponent, um, even though you may disagree with the things that they did, you have a respect for them and what they went through. And if the presidents themselves have that, do we learn anything from that? Should How about we forgiveness? Have... How about you move on? Right. Well, but I guess the point is that if, if you do move on, and we can look at this example of these three moving on, then as we judge presidents of whatever party, should we bring some of that perspective into the way we look at them and say... If ultimately everybody's going to forgive these judgments of the moment because they're temporary and not as powerful as this larger thing, then perhaps we should think about that larger thing in the moment. Uh, And I don't know how what form that takes, but I'm struck by this little friendship and what it may tell us about the presidency. Jimmy Carter's not really on Twitter. The Carter said. I'm so glad you looked that up. I I was just on the edge of my seat about that. (laughs) Fuck you. President Clinton is like being like presidential tweeters. He's the only presidential tweeter. I mean, Barack Obama tweets, but that's also you can't you can't credit that account. But fine, I wear your derision as a badge of honor as ever, Emily. Good. Just like FDR. Yeah. That's right. 
my chatter is the best story on the internet this week is by my wife. I, I just want to call it out. It it's, is really good. I'm glad you're calling it out. And it's about forgiveness. And it's about forgiveness. Practice it. So Hannah Rosen, my dear wife, went and tracked down Stephen Glass, who, for those of you who follow journalism, know that in the 1990s, late 1990s, Stephen Glass was a reporter for The New Republic. We've talked about him on the show before. He made up a huge number of stories, was ultimately caught uh, by the editor Chuck Lane and, and actually by another magazine and was disgraced, drummed out of the profession, and then over the past 15 years has remade his life, has tried to be he went to law school, has been trying to get admission to the California bar and, and was rejected after uh, years of appeals. After the last appeal failed, Hannah for the New Republic asked her to go see Steve for the 100th anniversary issue of the New Republic. And Hannah and Steve had been great friends. He, he was at our wedding. He was, we were very incredibly close. She was, Hannah's in the, in the New Republic movie. She was the Chloe Seveny character, if you've seen the Shattered Glass movie. And she got to spend time with Steve, who hadn't really talked in 15 years about what he'd done or why he'd done it. And it's a beautiful story about when do you forgive? What is, it to, what is redemption? Should Steve, should we excuse what Steve did? Or has he, has he passed into the realm of, of just you everyday citizen? Does, she, does he need to keep reliving this, this um, terrible, terrible, terrible set of mistakes he made? Or can, is he allowed to get past it? It's a great story. So uh, at uh, in the New Republic this week, our intern is Max Tawney. He's not here with us um, because. But we appreciate him always. Always appreciate Max. Our producer who is here with us is Mike Volo. Thank you, Mike. Joel Meyer is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers, who was here, is now gone. Executive producer of Slate Podcast. Our show page is slate.com/slash/gabfest. Has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. And subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. You can search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Chicago. Thank you, Chicago. Our conundrum show will be coming at you in a few weeks, too. Place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 